Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Lion Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been, and it always will be. Okay, welcome to the program. Uh, it's the first segment of this week's show, but it is the second part of an interview with John English. Uh, we've got Extreme playing in the background. We're at Sweden Rock. Susie Demarchi's ex is up there. Um, John, um, what? Um, paint us a picture for people who maybe will never come here in their lives. Oh, okay. what, what, what this is? I, I think I can do it. It's Tamworth or Gympie, but it's not country, right? It's it's metal. So yeah. there's studs and tattoos and weird haircuts and I mean, a lot of the people walking around look much more like rock stars than we do. And, and, but they're kind of the average age. Johannes was saying it's about forty-two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're, they're kind of they got money. These guys. Yeah. Um, so think Tamworth without the boots and the hats and the dress-ups, country. Yeah, yeah. Think yeah. like metal. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And that's it. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And they love it. And they're such nice people. They look scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, scary, scary ex-Vikings. You know, they're yeah, huge. Yeah, 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 but they'll come up and say, "Hey, you had a very good concert last night." We just heard one. Yes. Can I have a photograph for you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. They'll speak perfect English. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And. That there's no rules and regulations like festivals we have at home. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. Um, you can get a drink anywhere. We walk around with a beer. Um, there has been no fights mm-hmm. at this concert so far. It's nearly finished. There was nearly one at our gig where a guy tried to climb the barrier, and it was in six rhythms. I know, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise, you know, no, just no trouble at all. So, John, if you wanted to, could you move here, have a career here, live here? Oh, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. yeah. Is there anything stopping you? I've just got plenty of work at home, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I like Australia, sorry. Yeah. It's a lovely place to visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Norway, well, come back and do Sweden and Norway and Denmark next year. You know, the smaller clubs and stuff, but uh, no, sorry, no, I'm Australian. <laughs> now, interviews like this are a complete waste of time if you don't plug anything. So, what are you working on? What, what's first on the agenda when you get home? Uh, I've got some recording to do, and I really, I really have. It's not like I don't have any work, so I'm going to make a record. Uh, yeah, and just kind of fix up a few bits and pieces, management-wise. And like okay, another song? Oh, another song. Uh, they, they've never heard Hollywood 7 here, but they really like it. Yeah, it's like, a great song. It was great the other night. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they, they like the angels, and they like story songs, and they yeah, yeah. speak really good English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah that one. to Hollywood looking for a room in the pouring rain With her hair so blonde and her eyes so brown She thought she'd take this town and turn it upside down Well I was living in a hotel just off sunset She moved in across the hall She said she'd be a movie star And waited every morning for the call So I asked her in to share a drink But she hardly had the time A call might come tomorrow 
Steve Muscard on White Line Fever. If you can hear my voice, you're listening to White Line Fever. Okay, welcome back to the program. This is the middle section where we talk about rugby league, and uh, I've got to mention we're on uh, Twitter, WLF Podcast, and we're also on Facebook, White Line Fever. I'm here with Shannon Crane, who's the. Uh, uh, we're at the footy, we're at ANZ Stadium, and I'm here with Shannon Crane, who's the chairman of the Thai Rugby League. Um, it's a long story, and uh, we haven't got a lot of time, Shannon, but uh, you're obviously not. Thai, you don't look Thai to me, so uh, what's the story, how did you get involved? 
Well, I've been in Thailand now for about 11 years doing business, and uh, I'm a rugby league uh, tragic, so I decided that uh, the thing we were missing, us uh, Aussie guys sitting around on the weekend, was a live game of football. So we got together in 2011 and decided that we'd start a league. And uh, went out, registered company, did all what we needed to do and started the process. We had an um, exhibition game in 2013, and, and then 2014 we rolled our first domestic league, which was uh, last year. How many teams you got now? Uh, we've got five in the in the competition this year. We are expanded from four last year, so yeah. Now a lot of the listeners would be uh, aware that there's another Thai team. Uh, what's the story there? Well, the, there's, a, there's a Thai group out of Sydney, well, a, a group out of Sydney calling themselves Thailand, but um, you know, we're actually a, a registered entity in the Kingdom of Thailand. We're a, a totally legal company. We have work permits, business visas, everything that's associated with running a competition in Thailand. And um, these guys here come in on tourist visas and put off one-off events. So how does how's it all going with the International Federation? I'd imagine, do, how do they go with... Do they have to choose between the two groups? How does it work? Well, at this stage, they keep saying to us, look, you know, there's no reference to the Thailand Stars on any Federation page. There was, at, at one stage, they put up an article. Uh, we brought it to their attention. They pulled it all down. So at this stage, they're saying we are in the driver's seat. We're, we're the ones doing the work. We're on the ground. We're legal. Um, just keep going. Put on your second comp- year of competition and you'll get a ranking. So um, have they tried to sort of put the two sides together and get you both together? Well, they did. They put us, We got in a room um, after the, the grand final last year, the day after, and sat in a room and had a chat with the Stars guys. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, we really couldn't get any uh, consensus there. The guys basically said, look, we can't run a domestic league. We don't have capacity. We don't have the money to do it. So, um, unfortunately, uh, if you want to run the domestic league, we'll run, we'll run half the international. So, you know, unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Having all the glory and not doing the hard work. Um, you know, we're the ones doing coaching clinics around the country, flying from province to province, putting coaches up in hotels and, and running these clinics. So, you know, unfortunately, you can't have the glory without the work. Now, what do you have to do to make the World Cup qualifiers? Like, there's obviously some criteria as far as the number of domestic uh, players you've got to have and the length of your competition, all that sort of stuff. When will you be able to sort of uh, be involved in World Cup qualifiers? Uh, we won't be ready for 2017. Uh, we need to have two consecutive years of competition. We need to have all our accounting and, and, and the, the Federation then gives us the nod to be an affiliate member. So that, that process will take another couple of years. But uh, we, we're observers, and, and we go from there. We just have to go. And how, I mean, how expensive is it? How hard is it to find sponsors? You know, if, if someone's listening and they want to set up rugby league in a country that doesn't ha- currently have rugby league, would you, would you advise them against it? <laughs> to, to be honest, um, mate, I've spent close to 4 million baht over the last three years, which is about 120000 Australian dollars. So, look... To be honest, time over again, I probably should have bought myself five units and rented them out for two and a half grand a month. But, uh, you know, I, I don't regret what we've done. And, you know, seeing the boys go out and play Norway number 19 in the world last year and rack up a big win was, uh, was made it all worth it. In the grand final day, handing the boys, Taz Bateri from the Federation, handing the boys their medals to his premiers, you know, it all made it worthwhile. Where do you draw your players from for the international side? Are they all domestic or do you have a few expats? Uh, last year we had four um, players come in from overseas. We had one bloke playing in the New Zealand competition, rugby league competition. We had one bloke from North Queensland playing in the, uh, the Cairns comp. And uh, the other guys came out of Sydney. So um, normally our squad, we have a limit where we'll pick only uh, eight import players maximum. 
but most of them are coming from our uh, domestic competition in Thailand. And what happens to the like to the Thailand stars? Do they just keep playing and you just leave them to it, or or I mean, and are there players who want to? I imagine some players who want to play for both teams. So how does it work there? Well, so we, we sort of uh, early on decided we'd allow our players to get involved in stars games. Unfortunately, they went in uh, they went in against Japan here at Redfern Oval the year before last. Um, as they do, uninsured every time. And uh, we lost one of our players there with a knee that, that needed a 12-month waiting period, and, and we lost him for at least 18 months. So uh, we made the decision from there on in. Um, you know, we pay our insurances. You know, it's ridiculous in this day and age. A kid gets tipped on his head. You have an Alex McKinnon situation. You know, these guys have got no recourse. They're signing waivers, and there's no insurance. You know, it's, to be honest, we brought that to the Federation's attention and they were actually dumbfounded. They couldn't believe that people were putting these guys in that risk. Um, you know, we spend two and a half grand a year on insurances in Thailand just to make sure if something goes wrong, these boys are covered. Yeah. Are you, are you, is there any interest in there about having some exhibition games? Like, I mean, the World Club Challenge, they keep talking about having that in Dubai, when, hopefully not Dubai now after what's happened there. Yeah. But, you know, um, in uh, Singapore or Hong Kong, you know, is there any prospect for rugby league, you know, having some big events in Thailand? And obviously, the political situation there isn't as stable as it was five or ten years ago, is it? Well, look, the, the political situation in Thailand, I've been doing business there 11 years now. So what happens is every two to three years, an upheaval happens, new administration comes in, settles down for a bit, and then three years later, it comes up again. So, look, you know, we're, we're used to the climate now. That's the way it just goes. Um, we'd absolutely be able to um, we've got the facilities there uh, Man United play there, Chelsea play there, all all kitted up with tie names on the back of their shirt, the potential's there, um, they can play in a 55,000 seat stadium in Bangkok as Chelsea and Man U do um, FC Barcelona sold out in 15 minutes last year. So Is the, the NRL on TV there? Uh, yes it is, uh, we get three live games a week and then we get uh, two others on replay, yeah. so yeah we're getting five games a week. So any discussions with the Federation, what, what's the next um, thing for you is it is it to be involved in the World Cup qualifiers? Is it to get NRL or Super League games there? Is it to get coaching clinics? What's your next big goal? Well, our, our focus is on developing the players on the ground. That's what it's been all along. So we'll we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to um, put put resources into flying around the country and developing these kids. Um, and then you know, as I said, if we can get an NRL interest down the track, then we'd be definitely. In, the, in a place to, to handle it. So the problem is it's late season. Our, our competition kicks off at the end of September, early October. And the reason that happens is because it's the coolest part of the year in Thailand. Yeah, it's yeah. not humane to run around in the middle of um, April. Um, it would just, you know, you, we'd be talking, you know, 40 degrees and 95% humidity. When's your, uh, when's your next international chance? Our next international is on the 11th of October in Bangkok. Right, and who's that against? Well, we've actually got a uh, new way locked in for that position at the moment, but we're just there's been some issue about the Pacific Games, so, so we're meeting with them next week, but um, yeah, new way was the, the team we had locked in for that. All right, so there might be some conflict with them. There could be a problem, not not between us, but apparently there was some situation there um, in regards to them not going to the Pacific Games for the, the tournament that just happened in PNG. Um, so, as I said, there's discussions with their board at the moment, and we'll have that discussion next week to find out what the thing is. Yeah. Shannon, it's great to finally meet you. I know there was a bit of uh, conflict there because the coverage I was giving the other mob are trying to be completely even-handed, and um, and it's clear that you're doing some great stuff on the ground, so hopefully um, hopefully things will settle down because we, we want everyone pushing in the same direction if possible, don't we? Absolutely. And, again, you, the only, only place you can do the work is on the ground. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's got to be done in the country, 
um, and that's just the way it's got to be. I'm going to go back to my seat now. We've got the National Anthem, not the Thai National Anthem, <laughs> the Australian National Anthem. Thanks, Shannon. All right, thanks, Steve. So um, as, we have the, as we have the National Anthem in the background, and I've just been handed a jumper, um, as we have the National Anthem in the background, I have to remind you to go to iTunes and leave a comment, um, leave a rating, make some suggestions. Also, uh, whitelinefever.ning.com. Um, and uh, if you just click on the um, Amazon link there, um, then uh, if you make a purchase, I just get a little percentage of uh, a little commission and it doesn't cost you any more. Or also, or hit the donate and just give us $1 a month, $2 a month, $3 a month. Uh, I've been doing a donors column, but I'm running low on donors. So uh, here's some music and we're back with more rock and roll interviews.
Tracer, you're on White Line Fever. Okay, welcome uh, back uh, to the program, and I'm here with uh, Frankie from the darkness. Uh, now, man, very interesting. Um, a lot of people have interpreted uh, Last of Our Kind as a concept record. Is it a concept record or not? In some ways it is, for sure. But if it is, it's a concept album um, that exists within a fantasy world. And that fantasy world is, um, I guess, a kind of sci-fi fantasy version of the darkness. <laughs> but the sci-fi fantasy is, I guess, we involve a time-travelling element as well because uh, there are two songs that involve uh, Justin's historical reinterpretations of the past. People are probably thinking Spinal Tap here, but in actual fact, um, he is a very keen history student. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty much him empathising with the plight, first of all, of some Irish people who were, um, I guess, kidnapped by the Moors yeah. in the uh, 1400s, I think, the sack of Baltimore, up the coast from Kerry. Um, the women used as sex slaves. And the other one is Barbarian, which is uh, the Vikings in East Anglia, mm. where he's from. Um, and, and I think in both songs he's really imagining um, he's like an onlooker there and he's just trying to feel the essence of what's going on there and um, I don't really think there's much irony involved really yeah does that actually having that <laughs> having that does it stop people there's irony but is it, does it finally give you some relief from the are they serious or not question which I'm sure you get it maybe two out of every three interviews but because this has a, under, a sort of thematic underpinning you're at least spared that for for a while, aren't you? Or did you find that or not? Uh, well, we know that people actually listen to it and take the character to read the lyrics, realise it's not it's not kind of Steel Panther or Tenacious D. It's mm-hmm. a completely different thing. It's very heartfelt. Justin's capable of uh, poetic flights of fancy. He can become quite lyrical when he wants to, if you listen to the lyrics and mm. love is only feeling and uh, Wheels of the Machine on the new one. Mm. Um, so it's misunderstood. It's just the fact that uh, uh, people normally hide that part of themselves, the silly part of themselves. It's that silly part that you reveal to your mates, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also to your girlfriend when you work, uh, when you're in love with, when you click with a girl, you you just do silly stuff and and you lose all that self consciousness. Mm. So really, I think um, I think that's what characterises Justin as a front man. Mm. It's complete lack of self consciousness. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, um, the um, maybe I should prompt you with the next song selection because there's one on the new record that you actually sing. What's the, what's the story behind that? <laughs> it's called Conquerors. Yeah. I have to thank Dan for the title because uh, I was going in a certain kind of direction and it was very... Um, uh, it was me, basically, um, my subconscious, I guess, welling up. Uh, you can tell uh, it's quite emotional, I guess. It might be. It might involve the band a little bit, and maybe bits of it involves breakup with a partner. But I guess it's about failed aspirations. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, and uh, basically it, it came about uh, very spontaneously. Dan just started picking out the arpeggio at the start of the song, and then then um, I basically just blurted out as a demo for Justin to maybe use uh, the. Um, all of the lyrics and the melody in the first verse are all completely intact from just spontaneous and the melody of the bridge and the chorus were all there and it needed something and then Dan said the word conquerors and then suddenly the chorus had something to uh, hang itself on and also fitted in with the rest of the, with, with the lexicon of the rest of the um, album uh, which is uh, like you say which makes people feel it's a concept album because if you look at the, t- the song titles there's a definite theme running through it it's like the elements and it's uh, basically there's a theme of defiance, and every, every song has a, has a theme of defiance. 
Hi, this is Frankie Pilau from the Darkness. You listen to White Line Fever. Okay, we're, our next guest is uh, the great uh, John Brewster, and he is smiling like a Cheshire cat, having just played at Sweden Rock. Uh, great experience. Yes, I am smiling like a Cheshire cat. <laughs> it's uh, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And you just got to go, why the hell didn't we come here earlier? Mm-hmm. Um, and to go to France as well and, and, and London after not playing here for 35 years. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, here we are, and it's, it's just wonderful that, that there's still that opening, and I think, we, I think we're going to come back again. What are your uh, favourite experiences um, from the trip so far? Well, I mean, tonight was amazing, um, and obviously a whole lot of people who really didn't know uh, songs and didn't know that much about the band, but we, uh, I know that we won them over. I mean, I, I know that. You could you can feel that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... It's all been great. You know, we played this club in London. Uh, uh, the club's called the Garage, and, and uh, we had a, about you know 300 people, and uh, they were fanatics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just realise, oh, yeah, they've been hanging out for all these years. You know, they weren't um, expats. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. they were, they were ex- you know English people, uh, and they had all the albums. And uh, and then we then we did this gig in Paris called uh, Le Forum. Yeah, yeah. And number one, I mean, the people who ran the venue were just the wonderful people, and just so welcoming and so, you know. When we turned up at two o'clock for a sound check, you, no one's ever ready for a band for a sound check. They were ready. Yeah, wow. they had lunch there for us. So all of that, all the, all the build up to the show, and there, there was this full house of of French people who were singing on mass. Rick's guitar solos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd finish the song, and you couldn't start the next song because they're all going angels, 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 angels. <laughs> and it was like, well, I, and at one stage when uh, in No Exit, Rick does this, they sang that. I got the goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, I was got the shiver. I just, what the fuck was that? You know, it was just incredible. Do you think a lot of Australian bands are kind of ignorant to what's out here, not there? You know what I mean? They don't realise that, that they've got a, an audience that that sort of has missed them. You know what I mean? Is it open your eyes, you know? It's totally opened my eyes, actually. And so, so did New Zealand, funnily enough. You know, because, I mean, New Zealand's obviously close to Australia. But we haven't played there for many, many, many years, like 20, 25 years. And we were doing, you know, stadiums. And uh, I actually said to the, the band at the, the first gig, the Auckland gig, you know, when we stop at No Secrets and the yeah, audience yeah. sing that, I said, don't expect it because, you know, are you kidding? They were bigger, uh, they sang it louder than the Australian audience. <laughs> uh, so, what does the future hold? I mean, uh, Dave was saying some stuff about, he said it was, uh, there was one guy, was, I think it was in France, it was like Back to the Future. He got on the phone, you'll never guess what I just heard. Yeah. And uh, you know, maybe a festival, uh, is it, I mean, uh, have you opened doors in that regard? I think we d- uh, definitely have. This uh, uh, Dominic, his name is, yeah. uh, and he's, an a- he's the agent. I think he's the agent that uh, organised us to yeah, play yeah. there. And he totally gets it. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he said to us that he's never seen a response like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, it's it's obviously 
uh, been a wonderful experience. It's just incredible. And what I love about the band is it really is a band. It's not. It's not like this band that used to be, and we've hired some people to play those songs yeah, yeah, with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's a real band, you know. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really cemented that is that is that we have done two new albums with Dave and you know, Chris Bailey played on the first one and some of the second one and Sam's taken over the bass because we sadly lost Chris and it's just got such a spirit. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't you know, it great the response to talk to talk uh, tonight? You know, like because they're not they've got no preconceptions about these songs, so they just judge it as it is, and they, they were crazy for that song. Right? Yeah, well, you know what? I'm actually pretty proud of that song. Yeah. I think I think it's uh, it's. I mean, I'm actually proud of the Talk the Talk album. I actually think it's one of the best albums we've ever yeah, made. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I know that it'll never be seen the same way as the earlier albums because. You know, the earlier albums, that's where all the radio airplay came from, etc. Yeah. You, know, you know, the band's not going to get that now. I mean, AC do, ACDC don't get airplay yeah, yeah, on their yeah. new stuff. You know, the Rolling Stones don't. And yeah. I don't mean to put us on the same yeah, 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 yeah. But, well, I think we're all great bands. Yeah. And, and, um, and I understand that. But I also understand that when we go out there and play... You know, we put some of the new songs in, but not that many because yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're not there. They haven't paid that money to see the yeah, new yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. but they'll accept it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think Talk the Talks turned into one of the big songs. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard you in a number of interviews talk about um, le- uh, leaving Alberts and how a crap decision that was. When you get home and you look back on this, will you suddenly think, wow, we could have been doing that for 20 years? Or will it be glass half full? You'll just go, we just did something great, onwards and upwards. You know, are there many regrets built into it, you know? I think regrets are futile, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can, you, you, can, you can certainly look at the past and, and you can see where the mistakes were made. And then you can start criticising people like the manager, etc. But what's the point of that? Because he was doing it with the right... You know, he he had the band's interests at heart, mm. and so he, he might have made some mistakes. We've all made mistakes, mm-hmm. but the thing is that uh, you know, actually, uh, Rick and I've got this song. You know, the, mm. the, the Bruce and I've got this song mm. called "Would You Do It Again?" Yeah, yeah, great song. Yeah, and, and and that song is kind of good because it basically says if you're really happy with where you are now, mm. then all the shit that you've been through. And the highs, you would go through it again because you're happy where you are now. And if you want, so you, so if you want to change what happened then, for example, you know, uh, I might not have met Sue. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we might have come over here and just lived over here, and there would have been a whole different set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I might not have had my boys. You yeah, know, and yeah, I've got. Yeah. And we do this show. We've got my three sons on stage yeah, with me and Rick. I mean, how amazing is that? Yeah. Spreading round in that Texas town, about a shack outside the Grange. You know what I'm talking about? Just let me know if you wanna go to that home out on the range. They got a lot of nice girls out there. Have mercy.
G'day, I'm Dave Gleeson. And I'm John Brewster. And we're from the Angels. And we're on White Lion Fever. <laughs> Welcome back to the program, and it's that archive segment again. Um, I've got to come up with a better name for it than that. But uh, it's weird that sort of the program, the pace is quite, I think, clips along um, at, a, at a good pace for the first 40 minutes to an hour, and then we talk to the same artist uh, in extreme detail from a long time ago and play only their music uh, for the second half of the program. I hope, I don't know, if you've got any ideas about how we could do things better or whether it's a bit jarring, um, say something on uh, Twitter, WLF Podcast, um, or maybe we should split these archival interviews up throughout the program, or maybe we should put it in the middle, or maybe we should put it at the start. I don't know. Uh, tell me what you think. We've got something pretty cool for you uh, this week. It's Aerosmith, the entire band. Um, I was 21 years old. Um, Aerosmith were touring Australia for the very first time. It was 1990. Uh, their first show was in Adelaide on uh, the 29th of August, 1990. And this interview was conducted um, in the days preceding the Sydney show, which was on the 10th of October, 1990. It was a press conference before, and I've actually got the tape of the entire press conference as well here, which I'll put in a later program. Uh, maybe the standard of questioning is a bit better in that, in that than this. But uh, um, I, I asked some, a few aggressive questions, um, but I thought the fellows who must have done a thousand interviews by then, um, I don't know why at that time I was considered important enough to get the whole band. Um, it's pretty amazing to have interviewed all of Aerosmith at the same time. Uh, especially for a print interview. Um, but um, I thought that they were really um, attentive and enthusiastic. Uh, there wasn't a hint of, um, uh, well, to quote um, one of their later songs, Jaded. They, at, no point, at no point were they uh, jaded. We were in a, um, the Seawall the Townhouse was in King's Cross, and it was a place where all the bands uh, used to stay. And I remember from this tour that actually... Um, um, they based themselves originally um, at, so but perhaps I think they were basing themselves in Sydney and, and travelling to the other shows. So this may have actually been in August, not October. Uh, but I think uh, Stephen Tyler at one point on this tour asked to move from King's Cross into the city in Sydney. I think it was in Goulburn Street, the hotel that they moved to. Uh, because of the temptations at King's Cross were just too great. Um, and a big part of... Uh, the shtick of uh, Aerosmith at the time was that they, you know, they were all sober, and you know, it was obviously it wasn't just shtick; it was uh, sincere. But it was uh, a lot of the publicity surrounded that. So, I'll take you now. We'll get in the old time machine again. Take you back to 1990. Uh, I'm guessing around August 1990 uh, in Sydney, the Siebel Townhouse at King's Cross, and it's me, 21 year old me, um, with um, Tom Hamilton, Stephen Tyler, Joe Perry. Brad Whitford uh, and uh, Joey Kramer. Joe, you, you were saying earlier that, that in the in the seventies you probably you all wanted to come here, but your management at the time was sort of saying you don't bother going there, you can't make any money and stuff like that. I mean, did you ever come really close to coming here in the seventies? I mean, what actually happened? Why didn't you come here in the seventies? Well, you know, in the in the early seventies when we were being groomed to be a, a big rock and roll band, the, uh, the I guess maybe 85 to 90 percent of the world market was the United States mm. and uh, that's pretty much where we concentrated doing all of our, uh, our all our playing you know we were out on the road for like sometimes maybe uh, 24 25 26 months at a time and uh, you know we did Europe back then and uh, I think we even once went to Japan mm. um, 
Why we didn't come here, I don't really know, to tell you the truth. But mm. I guess it just wasn't a viable market at the time. Where we, where we concentrated most of our energy was in the United States. Because that's the way things were really back then. Now, you know, today it's it's way different. Mm. Who knows, you know, you don't really know why. We can speculate that, <clears throat> that the management didn't want a chance to dragging us across the border and getting busted. But <laughs> in reality, we don't know. I mean, you know. Plus, it wasn't one of those places that you just started back and think of going in, mm. in the 70s. It's like going... Oh, by the way, you want to play in Argentina? It's, like, it's not like a place you'd normally think of going. And then, you know, it wasn't like we all sat in a room and said and had a decision to make about to go to Australia or not. Mm. You know, you know, and all those reasons, like Joey said, about the world market and all that. I mean, I'm sure that's was going through the management's mind. But as far as we were concerned, if if we ever had those kind of questions, it would be well, well, maybe we'll go next year. But by by the way, you you know, like we're we're playing at the Miami Sportatorium, so. Mm. You know, and then it's on to the next, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about, I mean, the talk of the credibility thing? I mean, why do you think it is now that you're on the cover? Is it just persistence? I mean, do you, is that all you can put it down to, cover of Rolling Stone and that sort of stuff? Or, I mean, have you ever thought about why suddenly it's it suddenly happened? It's not sudden. It took us... We're five years along now since the band got back together. Mm. You know, it's sudden because one day you're not on the cover of Rolling Stone and the next day you are. Mm. But to get to that point, it took years and years. It started when we first started making the, putting the band back together in 1984. Mm. You know, I mean, for my money, I think we should have been on the cover of Rolling Stone then for the fact that we got back together. Mm. If I gave that much of a shit about it, but the fact <laughs> is, you know, I mean, it's it's taken us four years, and people are still calling me to come back. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's yeah. like, you know, you hear Janie's got a gun here, and all of a sudden we've got this huge thing. So all of a sudden we ask, "What's really big here?" That's the only thing that's, that's sudden that's happened to us in the past three years. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think what brought the attention back to us was, you know, was, get, was getting back together in 1984. You know, because everybody had us dead and buried, and we pretty much came back from the ashes. And there was a lot of people that uh, that didn't really wish to see us uh, succeed. You know, but I think the fact that we well, which, which people were that? Paper or people? People, sorry. Oh, just you know, the the, uh, the media. You see, you got to think about what it is about a band that, that that likes to be called Peck's Bad Boys. I mean, everybody put us down for being America's Rolling Stones, and and just made so many analogies about us that weren't true. And and even Rolling Stone magazine, we we got slapped and slandered in that magazine so much that Joe Perry once said that if we ever got a good interview, it would be like this kiss of death. <laughs> it would mean like we were really over, and you know. We've always held on to that philosophy because we came out of that, that, you know, America's bad boys and being put down. But, you know, why is it that you're always in the press for being put down? you got to stop, slow it down. Why is it that you're always in the press? Mm. And then for being put down, you can chop that off and throw that away. It doesn't matter. We were always in the press. Mm. Um, there was something about us that they liked or, or didn't like. Plus, when we, were, when we first put our band together, it was to play the kind of music we wanted to hear that you usually didn't hear on the radio. Mm. You know, it was like the kind of music that you didn't hear by bands that were on Rolling, in Rolling Stone or, or the establishment magazines. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, like we were like the kind of the counters. So they were, we were like easy marks for the people in the press because we weren't out to make friends of them. You know, that kind of, of that ilk. Mm. So when we... And now... It seems kind of strange to be accepted by all those people because it's like, you know, you can sit there and go, what have we done? Have we sold yeah. out? But it, it, it hasn't. What's happened is by sticking to our guns, more and more people have wanted to hear our kind of music. And I'm not just saying like our, like Aerosmith, but I mean our genre. 
of bands. I mean, the fact that like a Motley Crue can come and like sell all the records they do and do all that they're doing, or Guns N' Roses, shows that, that people have finally decided that that's what you know that's what people want to hear. Mm. You know, and it's like so the whole thing has shifted. We haven't changed. We're the same band we were in 1975 or 74. Mm. You know, we're still playing the same songs and you know writing some new ones that are great too, but. The same heart and soul is there. It's just that the rest of the world, or the rest of the, the music establishment, has changed. So now we get MTV that likes us, and we got Rolling Stone that likes us. But who knows? Next year, maybe they won't. Yeah. But that ain't gonna matter to us. Oh, no. 
first show we did, a gig we got, was a club called Bun Riders in Boston. Yeah. And we went in and played, and they didn't even hire us, because we, we wanted to play our own stuff, and they didn't like our own stuff, and they wanted us to play things that they thought, that the owner thought, when he went and heard us, when we auditioned, that the kids would like, which is everybody else's songs, cover bands. Mm. So they didn't hire us. But it's that very attitude that we've kept all these years. Yeah. You know, like Joe says, we play the kind of stuff that we that we like. Yeah. And it is refreshing. You look at Guns N' Roses, they were, the reason they're so popular is because they're sickeningly fucking real. I mean, they're so fucking, you know, you get Slash, it goes up on TV and says fuck in front of so many people. You know, it doesn't matter. Like it, but that's pretty contrived, though, isn't but it? Like, I don't know if it is. You know what's contrived to me? These fucking bands and managers that go out and go, buy them a set of clothes, cut their hair, put them, you know, and they sing uh, to yeah. some tapes. That's contrived that's stuff. That's contrived. Mm. You know, to get a bunch of guys up there that don't give fuck all and, and yet can still write some good songs, there's your real meat. Mm. You know, yeah, then later on you can get someone in there to... But to how do you tell the difference between, I don't know, um, Guns N' Roses and Skid Row, or I'm not saying I don't know about Skid Row, but that's the point. How do you tell the difference? How, well, they're I mean, both can you sense not. it? Yeah, they're know. both. I think the kids can sense it. I think kids can sense when it's real and when it's bullshit. Kids can definitely sense it. It's a, it's a, que it's a question of of how long which kids have been around watching the bands, you know, like if you, like, like another band, like Skid Row, that to me, that's, that's also the real thing, like, mm. like, like, the, like a Guns N' Roses. Um, the only thing that comes to mind that, that I could compare them to is like a, uh, like a band like Warrant, mm. okay? To me, that's the kind of thing that's contrived, you know, with all the leather suits and <laughs> dyed hair and, and, uh, you know, not not necessarily to say that they can't play, mm. but you know, it's a kind of a thing where it's a little bit more contrived, and the age group that they appeal to is is that much younger than like what we do. But by and large, by the time we come around, uh, you know, and those kids and those kids are getting a little bit older. They all they all see where the whole thing really really uh, stemmed from, came from to begin with. I think it is feeling. Kids can't feel that. Yeah, but I mean, I, I suppose that all goes back to. Um, the, the grog and stuff and, and, and drinking and I mean that that's to a lot of people their sense of reality isn't it I mean yeah. you guys you guys stay in one city and you fly in for the gig and fly out and you know and, and, and probably you know and people are thinking well that's that isn't real I, I think a lot of people a lot of people might think well that's you know like just the same as people have lost faith in Kiss for instance now because I think it's it's uh, it's become too corporate I mean is there are you concerned about about giving off that image, you know what I mean? I gotta tell you something, the only thing that, that I've really put all my faith in is a show on stage. You gonna come see us? Mm. You tell me. Mm. Uh, the, the bottom line is... how you get to the gig. Yeah, the bottom <laughs> line is, is like, you know, we tried, we've been on, on, on the road now for over a year. Mm. How do you do it without losing your fucking mind? Mm. You fill your nose with a lot of coke, mm. drink a lot of fucking booze, and then it'll be okay. Mm. If you can still stand up on stage, because mm. that's the bottom line. The bottom, what, what's the main thing that you want to do is be play on fucking stage. Mm. But what happens? We drank so much shit and stayed on the road for so long, we wound up not being able to stay on stage. Mm. It's like you want to swim to the raft, but you're swimming so far that but you can't never make it to the raft. Mm. And on the raft is, you know, you want to eat and fuck some girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? You never made yeah. it to the party. Yeah. So we never made it to the party. We started losing all that shit. But but the reality is, is on stage. And now we base ourselves out of one city. And we can stay on the road for over a fucking year. Mm. We've got 170 it's shows fun. now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we, mm. take, we take this little jet, we fly to some place, and we leave, and we come back, and we do, it's called satelliting. You know, you stay in mm. Chicago, yeah, and, yeah. and you can you can play ten times staying in the same hotel. My underwear is in the same drawer. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I get yeah. Same room service. I get to know people. It's more like home. Mm. And then I fly out and do the gig. Would you, you tell me after the show, tell me what you think. 
Because I'd really be, you know, What's real? that's not really corporate stuff anyway. And all that really does is just enable us to, to do more shows and to do better shows mm. by saving the, the wear and tear on us. I mean, if, you have, if you've ever been on the road for any period of time, you try staying on the road for, for six months or eight months at a time, taking commercial flights every day in a different yeah, hotel yeah. every day and living out of a suitcase. You know, I mean, we, we did that. Tried we, doing it for 20 years. I mean, yeah. we did that for years and years and years. So, like, I mean? now all it is, is is a question of making it a little bit easier for us and we can expend that energy on stage and give it to our fans yeah. instead of expending it on traveling. Well, with songwriting, do you find that you're drawing your, the experiences and your inspirations from the past rather than the present? Or is there is there something there every day that, that you... I mean, just like before, that, that you think, oh, we could write a song well, about that? Well, with, with Joe Perry, he used to play play something on guitar, you know, and he'd hand me this cassette. And I'd take a fucking couple two and alls, put the headphones on, and sit on the bed and close my eyes, and I'd rock out, and I'd go, be devil, then I'd just start, you know, uh. and I'd write down my scribble. I'd listen back, and I was saying something. So you don't know where it comes from. You know, most of the stuff that goes on come from the past, from everything you did. Mm. If you're a little bitty baby and you know nothing and you're, you know, you're, your paper is blank and you go from the elevator to here, the only thing you can really zero in on is what you did from the elevator to here. You know mm. what I mean? Mm. If your scorecard is empty and you completely, it's whatever you've done, then you sit down and you write about it. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's like 50% of that and then it's 50% pretend. <laughs> you know, what it's if stuff Jamie had a learned, gun? But it's still, it's stuff you learn from, you know, from reading the paper or from inspiration, you know what I mean? It's got, I think that most of it, you're just learning, your, your mind yeah. is like sucking up all kinds of information over the years, and, and you know, that's where it comes out in a song, but uh, very often it's just like how you feel that day. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, because of the, what I'm trying to get at is because the lifestyle is different now, then the, the process of being, of coming up with ideas for songs must be very different, you know what I mean? So, as... Um, I mean, does that mean that less, um, more and more will become pretend as, as you run out of past stories? You know what I mean? Like, no, yeah, no, there's, always, new, there's always new <laughs> stuff <laughs> happening. There's always new stuff happening. It's like, you know, the process is the same. Second floor, hardware, children's wear, ladies' lingerie. Oh, good morning, Mr. Tyler. Going down. <laughs>
around now if, if Joe had a comeback? No, it wouldn't. I mean, I, it's hard to say. It's like, uh, it's, I don't know if I can even answer that. You know, when you're in the shape that we were in, we would have done anything for the rest of our lives and just, it's like a record skips. Mm. We're done, we're done, we're done until we had no more fans. Mm. Um, I was getting fan mail and said, you know, when is Joe going to be back with the band? And, but we kept it going. I mean, there's a lot of groups. Like Kiss will come back in another five years, and these guys will be all old and gray. And they'll do a reunion tour. And they'll always have their core to be there for them. Yeah. But nothing would have ever happened unless we, you know, we, we really just stopped the substance abuse, you know, because we were doing that more than anything else. Mm. That's why the whole drug thing is blown out of proportion. Mm. The real dope on it is, is that we were doing that more than music. Mm. And music was falling by the wayside. Mm. Our life was falling by the wayside. The families were falling by the wayside. Money was, we had none. Mm. We're zeroing in on nothing but drugs. With, you know, what do you got, man? And, and the music suffered. Mm. And somebody came along and said, "Don't you guys? Aren't you musicians?" Mm. And we said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, look what the fuck you're doing." Mm. You know, it's time to smarten up. Could you? I mean, could you see yourself? Any obvious? Um, for instance, if, the, if this band wasn't together, I mean, would you still be doing something? Would, you, would, this, would, this, would the Joe Perry project have kept going, or what would have happened? What are you asking? Would you be accountants? No, no, I just wondered whether, I mean, obviously if you're retired now, you can still be pretty comfortable, you know what I mean? So the point is, 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 it, is it the band that, 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 that's inspirational, or do you really think that you could, um, you know, go solo if you needed to? You know, if somebody left, would the band still be there? I don't know, it's hard to say. Would we have done what Zeppelin did and just broke up? I don't mm. know, it's kind of a waste of energy to even think about it. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, it's there's, like, yeah, it's we, like those kind of questions that are like, we don't think about what stuff is, like that because yeah. the band we function more as a as a family than now more than ever. You know, and it's not the kind of a thing where people are uh, are focusing on. You know, well, when I have time off or when the band is done, I'm going to go do a solo project or or go solo. You know, like if any if anyone if the time if if time allowed and anybody in the band wanted to do a solo project, there's really no reason why it couldn't couldn't be done. You don't have to leave. No one, mm. There's no reason for anyone to leave in order to do that. I think mm. that we've all learned that from the past. Mm. But you know, we don't function as as a uh, as that kind of a band. You know, I think everything that goes on from day to day, and as we continue to to grow mm. with each other, you know, that's what becomes more and more inspirational all the time. I mean, there's, if it was just a question of being out on the road just to make money and do what we do and go through the motions then we wouldn't be here. Mm. You know, we do what we do because it's still fun and the bottom line is is that the big get-off for us is what, is that we love to play mm. and getting, off on, getting up on stage every night and playing is what still does it even mm. if it doesn't matter how many years we've been doing it. When I, when I sit behind my drums every night and I can look in front of me and I see these guys running around on stage and I can sit there and play. Mm. That's what it's all about. You know, mm. nobody's thinking about, you know, like, well, what's, what am I going to do in five years, can I put another band together? Or this goes right now. This is all. This is what. This is what it is. It's what it always has been. Mm. You know? mm. So there's really no reason to ever even get into anything like that. Mm. Run DMC questions obviously annoy you. Why? No, they don't annoy us. In what way? Well, I mean, obvious, obviously, the the inference that 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 was the whole thing, and that if it wasn't for them, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be here today. Is, is annoying, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah, but the the truth is, is that it really helped us. You know, it gave us that. It lit the fuse again. Mm. You know, we were burning like a comet in the seventies, mm. and then it went out. And we re-rolled the fuse, and that act by doing that video 
lit it. Mm. And now there's nothing stopping us. Mm. It's, funny, what I mean. it's funny that that's a conception like outside of the U.S. because in the U.S. it, had, it really was not even that big of a deal. Mm. You know, like in Europe, we, we were surprised when we went over to Europe during the permanent vacation tour um, on a press tour that, that it was such a big deal over there mm. and down here mm. because it really wasn't that big of a deal in the States. We were in the middle of a tour. We whether that Run DMC thing happened or not, we still had to go through what we went through to make permanent vacation. You know, it was like, that was like a little minor thing, like off to the side. I mean, it, that Run DMC thing could have been twice as big a single in the States, but if we hadn't followed it, you know, gone on to, to end the, the Done With Mirrors tour, gone on to do the permanent vacation record, it wouldn't amount to a hill of beans. Mm. You know, I mean, because it was international, it was the thing. I mean, it, it helped us Africa. a lot more in, 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 in over there, you know, like in Europe, and I guess down here, and I don't know so much in Japan, but you know, it was a good thing. There's no doubt about it.
um, you're going through How many shows? Does anyone know exactly how many shows you've done on this tour? It's been a year, hasn't it? 148, 147. We got eight more shows to do. Is that one of the longer? Is that one of the longer tours you've done? It's almost down to the same number that we did in permanent vacation. Didn't we do like 150 or something? Yeah. 148. So yeah. It's like within a couple of shows of the last tour. Our union doesn't allow us to do any more than that. <laughs> Dude, I mean, is it? Does it become exhausting or not? Or is it less exhausting now? I mean, could you keep going for another year if you wanted to? Or? Only if we can. Only as long as we can fly. To the gigs in and out, you know, on our jet. Mm. Does it become, I mean... <laughs> yeah, some nights are a big fucking drag. Mm. Yeah, some nights. It's, it goes from week to week, you know what I mean? And that's why we've got to build in these times. That's why we do the stuff like flying the plane and we, we take two weeks off every six or eight weeks, yeah. you know, and do those kind of things. We only do, we very rarely do three nights in a row, you know, so it's like some, some tours, you know, you can get out and you're playing the same fucking show and or some legs, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. It gets really tiring. There's other other periods of the tour where you're like real excited and you know, different stuff comes along, like you do with like a, a marquee club show and uh -huh. you feel like, like uh, energized again and hey, you know, it's like any other job, you know. I mean I'm sure there's days you don't feel like picking up a pen. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Dude, you don't I'm know who you got to interview, you still don't <laughs> have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Do do I mean, you were saying like about a year ago, maybe that that there's no way that you could sit in a room where there's people doing blow and there's you know there's and there's four thousand bottles of Jack or whatever sitting around. Do you think if you put in that situation now, you'd be any better to handle it than you were, you know, when, when you first? Well, no. Went? One of the things that we learned is is that you know you get powerless over it. The reason that you know I can't drink anymore is because I've abused it. You know, I just instead of having one shot and being on my merry way. I'd want to sit there with a bottle and fuck it, you know what I mean? Until I couldn't walk out of the room. Mm. So, and that same thing with Coke. You know, I loved it so much, I loved it to death. And so, what, we, what, what you learn is, is that, is that if there's blow on the table, and I'm a fucking drug addict, it's calling my name. Mm. I'm going to be sitting here talking to you, but that fucking, I'm going to see it like I see that bag right there in my periphery. It'll be burning a hole, and I'll be, it'll be calling my name, so what I can do is get up and leave. It's not that I can't stay in the room, but what I did learn was is that if it's around, I better get out of there or else I'll start using it again and I won't have this band. Mm. You know, I'll just wind up going looking for a needle and shooting it. Mm. You don't know because you're not a drug addict. For me, that's the height. I love that. I could go grab a, a gram of blow and a couple of needles and go down and get some hookers and have them suck me off while I'm shooting coke. It's the greatest thing in the world. Mm. That's how sick I am. Mm. That's my addiction. So and there, still is. I gotta get the fuck out of the room. And it still is, you know. I would, I'm, I would never say that it isn't, because if I do, I'm fooling myself. Uh. Yeah, I mean, ever, did you ever do blow? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I've, I've tasted it. I've shot at my veins. It's been in me. It was on my, on me, in me for 15 years. You know what I mean? It was my thing. I always had it here. So, so I'm no fool. It's my best friend. That shit. I just don't see it now. Uh. And I don't, I don't really. The whole thing is, it's a mind game thing. I don't really put that much weight on it. All I do is I simply say that I ain't going to do any right now, today, mm. until I go to bed tonight. Tomorrow, I might do a line with you. You might come back here, and we'll do a line on the table. But today, I just ain't going to do it until my head hits the pillow. It's real easy to see it that way, you know, mm. and keep away from it. But you're talking to a lunatic here who loved it so much that if I walk in a room, it's like that whole misconception with the guys in Guns N' Roses. The press blew away out of proportion. The only thing I said to them backstage was, Slash came into my dressing room with the guys and we were going through my cassettes and stuff. And I just said to them, I said, look, if you guys got any blow or any dope and stuff, do it, do it somewhere else. Don't do it in my dressing room because if you whip it out, I'm going to have to leave my own dressing room. 
and that's going to be fucked up. <coughs> oh, but I'm going to have to leave because I can't be around it. Mm. That's all I told him. Never said you can't have any booze backstage or you can't do this or that. It was all the press made that up. Are they at the point now where, where you were up to 10 years? I mean, were you surprised when all the shit went down? They haven't done a record in so long and the drummer's, you know, the drummer's been in and out and he's out again. I mean, could you see that coming? Just just through their excesses or not? Who knows? Everybody's in a, it's a, it's a real personal thing. Everybody's in a different place. I, I have no idea where they're at now. Mm. I mean, I just saw, I mean, you see a lot of the young bands, you know, like fighting hangovers and stuff, but that's nothing new, you know. Mm. There's no, I mean, do you feel sorry for them or, or you don't even think about it? Well, you know, I can sit here and say on one hand that, you know, like I knew that was going to happen because they were all fucked up back then. And on the other hand, it's like, like Joe says, it's a personal thing, you know. Uh, first of all, it's none of our business, and, and the only thing that has to do with drugs, in, as far as any press goes, is that I had a problem with it, mm. and I don't do it anymore. I don't sit around going, Slash, you're fucked up, man, why don't you get in there? <laughs> if he calls me and asks me, I'll say, you know, I was where you were five years ago, and I almost died, and you know, here's what I did. If he asks me, but I don't sit around and tell people.
Plans now. Um, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a couple months off, and then what are you gonna do? We gotta go get high. Come on, look. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna ta- we're gonna take uh, you know three four months off, and then we'll start thinking about working again. Mm. Have you got songs written? Not only here. No. And what um and what about producer? You gonna stick with the same one? Would you like to? Well, we don't know. Yet. Uh, the discussion hasn't arisen yet, so we have it's undecided. Yeah. Do you think Vancouver has had, I mean, just that general atmosphere up there, because it's becoming a bit crowded now with, with blokes recording albums, but I mean, do, do you think that contributed to the atmosphere of the record? What, the fact that you were away, you know, you were, you were yeah. away? Yeah, yeah. Well, it always contributes. We've never recorded it in our hometown except for the first album. It always contributes to be uh, to be away because, well, for myself, it, it, it pulls you away from all the... You mean as opposed to being home? You're talking about, right? Yeah, or even, or even say in in LA, where you know there's people dropping in all the time. Well, it's t- yeah, it takes you away from the distractions. Uh, Vancouver is a beautiful city. Um, you know, you're, you're right about that. Remember when people would come up and let's hear your album? Just a few that tw- trickled through. Yeah, it was a big drag. It just takes away, it takes away all the uh, the distractions from what you know. If you're in a place, if you're at home, or if you're in LA, you know, it puts you more of uh, it puts you more in the the mode of, of a work mode mm. you know as opposed to like being home you go to the studio and then at night you go home and or, or on a day off you go to the dentist or whatever you know it's just it, it's too much of uh, it's not enough of, of one thing or the other you know so mm. it's like being home and, and sometimes we'll we'll base out of Boston for instance you know when we're in the New England area we'll, we'll stay home instead of staying at a hotel and I, it always it, it never ceases to uh, confuse me you know like you're I could be home during the afternoon and I, I leave my house at three o'clock to go do a show and come back at night. It's, I would rather just be out on the road in the work mode, you know, and stay there to be able to concentrate on that instead of being distracted by everything that's either home or if you're in a place like LA where there's a lot of shit going on. When we work, we're better off being someplace where it's out of the way so we can concentrate on what we're doing. Yeah. One, one more thing, you said that you said uh, yesterday that you went into a record store and asked them whether the whole catalogue was selling or, or just you know the new records. Do you do that everywhere? Does that actually influence? No. No. How do you how do you figure out what to put in your set? You just use your instincts, or do you try it on one show and then if it doesn't work, you change it around a bit? Or is that? Well, we were just asking like here. All of it. Yeah. So we do all of that. <laughs> right. I mean, we do the obvious hits, and when those start wearing thin, we we drop those and add other things. We've we got yeah. we've got six or seven songs that we love off pump. Because mm. just because it's new, um, and we've got six or seven songs that we've got to play because otherwise people get pissed off, like you know, sweet motion walk this way. And then we do uh, every other night. It changes. We'll either stick to our line in or uh, seasons of wither, mm. or uh, you know, train kept the rolling. We open up the show with train kept the rolling because it's so heavy and it like washes all the bullshit out of the room. Mm. It's just so fucking right there in the pocket and. 
I'm alone. Yeah, I don't know if I can face the neck. Is it me all the time? Mm. You know, it's and it's something another person can come in and say, well, that's professionalism. You got to become that thing. Well, there's something about that song that's just a little too wussy for me. Mm. I love it. I wrote it. And it but worked it's just in too a wussy. studio. It worked in a studio, and it's a great song. You know yeah. what I mean? But like Stephen said, sometimes you get out there on the boards. And some songs are harder to deliver than others. Mm. You know, I mean, some songs that I thought would be great live songs, like say St. John, it just never like came to came to fruition. You know what I mean? They just never translate well in a live place. Some of them are hard to, de- to deliver. You yeah. know, there's no regrets calling in Desmond Child for that record. Then. You don't. You don't regret it at all. Absolutely not. Because you know, we sit down with Desmond Child. He's like, it's really easy for him to call on stuff he's done before yeah. you, know, you can you can tell a Desmond Child thing yeah. I don't think uh, Angel or Hearts on Time sounds like any part of yeah. Desmond Child wrote <laughs> when he sits and goes in the studio with Desmond and Joe Perry comes out like a, yeah. a mutant child of a ninja turtle the train that kept a rolling all night long of rock and roll that she cannot kill that will live forever
I got a white line fever. Going to land down under. Going to turn around the corner, way down yonder. And <laughs> I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever, rock like fuck. That's what I say, okay? <laughs> come on down and rock on.